and welcome to a brand new episode of Black Future Doctor, a podcast dedicated to showcasing the experiences of black doctoral students in the UK. I'm Nina, your host, and today I have with me Rhys Johnson, who is currently doing a PhD in law at the University of Manchester. Hi Rhys, it's great to have you with me today. Hi Nina, thank you very much for having me. I'm very appreciative of the ask and I'm, I'm looking forward to taking part in this really important initiative. Brilliant. It's great to have you on board. To start us off, can you tell me a bit more about yourself and the subject of your PhD? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Rhys. I'm a final year PhD student uh, currently writing up. I'm in the Department of Law at the University of Manchester, and I'm researching assisted death as an ideological problem. Uh, So rather than the convention, which is to situate assisted death between the binaries of law and ethics, uh, I argue that this convention sort of occludes the real thing and that there is much more to be gained by understanding the ideological and historical contexts of the debate. So with that in mind, then, the sort of method, the the sort of theoretical method or the lens that I'm using is a, a, a Foucauldian genealogical method, wherein I start from the present, as in from the the point at which the problem of assisted death is expressed in its current context, and then try to work out how things became what they are. But equally, uh, I'm also interested in how they might have been otherwise. So yeah, that's, that's my PhD project. Sounds fascinating. When did you first become interested in this? Can you remember... Sure. So my background is actually uh, international environmental law. So my first degree was law with environmental science, and then I did a master's degree at the University of Newcastle, part-time in international environmental law. Now, during that time, I went traveling. I went to live in Israel for three months. And then when I came back, I was like, you know, I want to write about my experience. I want to try and find a module that will allow me to write about my experience of having lived both in Israel and also within the settlements in, in the West Bank. So I found um, a module called Critical Geopolitics. And that kind of introduced me uh, to the work of Michel Foucault. Now, when I finished my master's, a friend and I started a legal tech startup and we actually built a a smart bot that could help people create wills so rather than going to a law firm to pay a lawyer to help you write your last will and testament we created this sort of ai that could allow people to do that now we did that for a year and we actually got around thirty thousand pounds investment to be able to do that project but after the first year i kind of realized that the solution wasn't going to work uh, unless you could get people to have that more important conversation around death and dying, right? So you could make will writing really easy, really affordable, but unless people were prepared to have that important conversation around death and dying, it didn't really matter how well your software worked. So that's kind of how I've entered the realm of death and dying, and that's essentially it how I came to be interested in death and dying. The most fun subject. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It is a, a, a conversation killer. But I, I'm absolutely fascinated by it. So what's your experience of doing a PhD been like? So my experience, unfortunately, <laughs> it falls into the sort of the minority of experiences 
in which uh, it's been, you know, uh, immensely challenging. Mm -hmm. So my first year, uh, looking back, was pretty, pretty challenging. The sort of intellectual violence, I would say, that I was subjected to during this first year was really quite um, traumatic and has had a significant and profound impact on me, I would say. Mm -hmm. So it has been challenging. You know, things are a lot better now, but certainly that first year was was hugely challenging. And I suppose the, the difficulty that I had in that first year is that I had two supervisors. Neither of them were expert in the theoretical framework that I was using. I was using Michel Foucault as my theoretical lens. Whereas to them, you know, this was a project on assisted death or assisted dying. But to me, that was the least interesting thing about the project, actually. So for me, the interesting novel element of my project was applying a Foucauldian lens to assisted death as a way to open up the conversation around death and dying. But because of this gap in their fundamental understanding of, of that theoretical lens, uh, my, my first year was spent trying to convince two people of the value of that lens to someone who had never read him and uh, to someone who had read some of his work but ultimately didn't really vibe uh, with him. So that was the challenge of my first year, was, you know, spent having to convince and also apologise for Michel Foucault, which was, you know, just insane. Michel Foucault is probably, you know, the number one cited scholar in the whole of social scientists. Mm -hmm. So the challenge of trying to convince my two supervisors of the value and the validity of that lens you know was was hugely challenging yeah definitely and also an enormous amount of energy like emotional and mental energy going into you know you've got this project idea but then having to justify <laughs> it and, and like repeatedly as well is exhausting oh absolutely and you know the 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 feedback I got on the work was was incredibly harsh, just overly critical, unsupportive, and and frankly demoralizing. As you say, like the amount of energy that went into trying to make these arguments uh, was really really taxing. Mm. You know that was that was one of the challenges I had. You know, constantly having to rewrite uh, and reorganize and reshift my work. You know, by the end of my first year, I had you know, in my word bank, a 100,000 words. Wow. Uh, and as a first year student, that's just, you know, <laughs> at most, you, you're looking at maybe 20,000 words. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, for me, <laughs> it was five times that amount. And certainly when I look at, you know, my colleagues who are also on the same course as me, they didn't have to work as hard as I felt I was having to work, uh, which was really frustrating. Yeah, I imagine. And I guess there's also a fine line. I feel, because I'm a first year, I feel like there's a fine line between, like, we want to get feedback, but you need it to be, like, encouraging feedback. You, you need it to be feedback that will help you. You don't want it to demoralise you, particularly in your first year, when it's so new. Absolutely. And, and so... For me, my understanding of a supervisor was somebody who was firstly, you know, they were interested in your project, they were interested in seeing you succeed at your project, but that they were also there to kind of assist you uh, in helping you, you know, frame your thesis, frame your argument, and just kind of steer you in the right direction. Now, you couldn't justifiably do that if you didn't have an understanding in the theoretical 
background of that project, right? Of course. It wasn't just about um, assisted suicide or euthanasia. That important novel contribution was its theoretical bent. And yeah, if you didn't have a background in that, then, you know, when it came to trying to organise and shape a thesis then you were absolutely going to struggle because you just didn't have that, you know, fundamental, basic understanding. And so my job was made even more difficult because I was having to essentially teach my two supervisors about Michel Foucault. And as a supervisee, as a PhD student, I should that was a position I should just never have been putting, you know? So how did you cope with these challenges? Um, so with <laughs> with great difficulty, actually, although, you know, at the time I thought I was coping really well and certainly, you know, as a as self-funded PhD student, I, you know, I couldn't, I, I felt like I couldn't be seen to look weak. I felt like I couldn't be seen to not be coping very well. I didn't want to give the, my supervisors a reason or, a, you know, a valid reason for me not continuing on the programme. So, you know, although I, th- on the outside, it, you know, it looked like I was coping well, but, you know, on the inside, I was, you know, really struggling. And that pressure ultimately uh, had a significant strain on me. Mm-hmm. I had my first panic attack at 28 years of age. Now, somebody who is overcome a significant amount of adversity and uh, childhood trauma, witnessing substance abuse, extreme domestic violence. Like I was the perfect candidate for mental health issues and somehow managed to get through all of that. Never had any mental health issues growing up. And so it was really strange to me that, you know, I came to university to do a PhD and it was at this point in my life it's at this point that I started having issues around mental health. And, you know, at 28 years old, if you don't really have a language for anxiety or for panic, it's really difficult to kind of describe um, what you're experiencing. Mm. Um, So, you know, I would suffer, you know, prolonged periods of disassociation, constantly exhausted. You know, I just felt like I was losing my mind. But because I didn't have a language to describe that... You know, I knew, like, from a sort of physical point, I was, you know, clearly undergoing something. Mm. But I just couldn't connect the dots between what was happening and, you know, what was going on within my sort of supervisory arrangement. It took me eight months to to draw a connection between my panic attacks and my uh, supervisory team. Yeah. you know, is a really long time. And when you're doing a PhD, you've got to be doing a lot of other stuff in those eight months. Absolutely. Um, So, you know, and whilst all this was going on, you know, at a sort of um, mental health level and a a sort of physical level, Mm. I was still having to produce the work and still having to attend supervision, all the while feeling like I couldn't kind of put my hand up and say actually no I'm I'm really struggling like replying to your emails having to read your emails having to arrange supervision being here in supervision is causing me mm. significant harm so you're saying you kind of had this for about eight months and throughout your first year can you tell me kind of what happened after that point 
Sure. Um, so fortunately for me, during all of this, um, I acquired a third supervisor quite late into the first year. But nonetheless, um, you know, we finally had somebody who could kind of fill in that theoretical gap. And they kind of bore witness. And for them, you know, it was really challenging to to witness. And so it wasn't until... Um, I had my annual review um, that things kind of picked up. Now, before my situation began to improve, uh, things actually got a lot worse (laughs) than they'd actually been. So I had my annual review uh, in September and I went into that annual review just completely unprepared. I had had a supervision before my annual review in which I was kind of led to believe that everything was fine, that we were all on the same page, um, you know, that I was going to progress uh, into second year, then it would be fine, mm-hmm. you know. But it wasn't until I got into my annual review that actually I found out that my two principal supervisors had essentially changed their mind about whether or not I should pass into second year. And they'd actually recommended that I be downgraded to an MPhil. But nobody had told me this. Um, So I kind of went into my annual review thinking it was going to be fine, that I was going to pass. But then actually when I got into the annual review, it's a very different story. And, you know, for anybody that has to do an annual review, you know, they are stressful enough as it is. But I was kind of put on the back foot a little bit and I was made to read the comments of my two primary supervisors during that meeting. And, you know, it was, you know, it was an absolute mess mm. of an annual review. It was, you know, horrible for me to have to um, undergo that. But then also for my two reviewers and yeah. um, for them, it was, you know, equally distressing. So, you know, it was a challenging time for everyone. Now, fortunately, I got out, I got a a message from my third supervisor and she kind of said, look, I don't want you to worry, give me a call. And so I called her and kind of explained what had happened. And, you know, she was, you know, obviously really apologetic. Uh, For whatever reason, things just got lost in translation or there was some miscommunication as to why I hadn't seen those comments. She was just like, I don't need to worry, you know, I'm going to fix this. And then that's kind of when, you know, certain members of the university, certain members of the department kind of sprung into action. Uh, to kind of remedy the situation so um, eventually what happened is um, my work got assessed by some third party in the department and they decided that actually yeah you know the work was as good enough that I should progress into second year you know a silver lining to all of this is that I got a new supervisory team so my third supervisor became my principal supervisor and then they got somebody from international law to be my second supervisor so now I have you know two supervisors neither one of them are considered experts in assisted dying but actually they turned out to be you know the two best supervisors I could have ever wished for really. So it sounds like the support from your third supervisor was really important. So what would you say to other academics out there who may see a PhD student in a similar position? Oh, yeah, um, you know, absolutely. I'm I'm very grateful to, to my, you know, third supervisor, who is now my main supervisor. And, you know, I, I recognise that it's tricky to intervene. Uh, not everybody wants to, you know, because if you intervene, you have to consider the, the impact of that intervention, you know, what it might have on you. So it is tricky. 
But I think if a future supervisor is kind of witness to something like the poor treatment of a PhD student, I think that they have a a personal duty to themselves to speak up, but also a sort of moral duty to the profession to speak up, right? Mm. So to any academic, I would say, you know, they have a responsibility to do two things, I think. Firstly, you know, remember where you came from, right? Yeah. Remember your own experience as a PhD student, right? But I think secondly, the most important thing to do is to try to understand where your PhD student has come from and where they're trying to get to, right? So make an effort to understand how it is they got to where they are currently, right? Because everybody has a story and everybody has a, a history, and with that, sometimes comes baggage. Yeah, definitely. So how how do you think your experiences have changed you and influenced your future? So despite everything that kind of happened, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, I know I'm not the same person as I was when I started out. Mm. But having said that, I wouldn't change it for the world, right? So like, would I wish that first year experience on anyone? Absolutely not. But I'm glad that it happened to me because I feel like it means that it's less likely to happen to someone else now. Okay. So I feel like the department and the university are are just much more attuned to the realities of what happens when, you know, a a relationship breaks down between the supervisor and supervisee. Mm. So for me, in terms of how it's influenced my future, it's taught me a lot about the the kind of academic I want to be. Yeah. And the the type of supervisor, if I should ever become a a supervisor, Mm -hmm. in terms of how I'd want to do things. So certainly, you know, lead with kindness and compassion, you know, to provide my students with the space and the freedom to make mistakes, but also provide them the space to be creative. Mm -hmm. And to kind of treat every moment as an opportunity to learn something new and to challenge myself and not take things personally. Mm -hmm. But I think just being open to, you know, new ideas and be willing to challenge yourself is, you know, really important. Yeah, definitely. And just to kind of finish off, what's one piece of advice you would give to other black people considering pursuing a PhD? Um, So I think trust your instincts recognize that not everyone, even the most liberal or the most seemingly anti-racist, are not always prepared to do the work Mm -hmm. to understand what you're about or where you're coming from. You know, most people, I feel, do what suits them and what makes them comfortable. And the fact is, your being there as a Black student, you know, is a radical act of defiance. Mm -hmm. And not everyone who benefits from the institutional arrangement will be willing to make space for you. But some are. So it's about finding those people and surrounding yourself with people. You know, I'm fortunate that I had, you know, that third supervisor who was willing to make space for me. You know, and without her, you know, I probably wouldn't have made it into second year. Um, but I think perhaps the most important piece of advice is probably perseverance, right? So I would say that, you know, what feels like hell now will, in time, through, you know, sheer grit and determination and pers- perseverance, will feel like a gift later because through all of what I'd experienced in my first year, and in spite of it, actually. I now have a project that I'm incredibly proud of 
I have a supervisory team that, you know, has been really helpful and really supportive in not just supervising a project, but they also have, you know, the extra role of having to walk back some of the damage that was done. And that that's the kind of job that nobody gets professional credit for. You don't get extra pay for doing that. But, you know, the fact that they have done that and the fact that they have made it an important part of their supervision of me is really something I'm quite pleased and quite proud to, to have. So, yeah. Yeah, and we love to hear it. All right, that's brilliant. Thank you so much, Reese, for joining me today and talking about your experiences. For those of you listening, what do you think? How have you found supervision as a PhD student? Do you have a supervisor who has been really supportive and championed your work? Or the opposite? Remember to use the hashtag BlackFutureDoctor with any comments on social media. And please do feel free to leave a review. We'll be back this time next week with a brand new episode.